Well, and Tom and Karen and the rest of the team, about 20 people total, are still in Nicaragua. They'll be coming home tomorrow. And so we definitely want to keep them in our prayers over the next 24 hours and beyond, right? And uh, there's been some good pictures, and hopefully we'll hear some great stories in the next few weeks. Seek those guys out. Hear what God is doing. And uh, I love stories of faith. I really do. They're just exciting, and they boost me as a believer. And so today, I thought, well, let's, let's tell a couple stories of faith from the Bible, and, and we'll kind of mix it up. We'll take one from the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry and one kind of toward the end of his ministry and see how they compare and what God was doing when he sent his son to earth. And so we're, let's take a look at this. First, we're going to start in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This story is actually also, this account is also uh, told in Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26. And understand as we read these, that this is the Bible. This is an inspired word of God in a historic document. These are not just stories. They're not fables or fairy tales. But these are real. These happen. And we know that they happen because there are people way smarter than me that went and they dug stuff up and they looked at stuff. And there's all kinds of archaeological evidence from both the Christian archaeologists and the secular that say, wow, this stuff happened and there is evidence of it. So we know this to be true. And so we're going to take these stories as testimonies and see the way Jesus moved when he was on earth. So here's the, the context here. Again, it's shortly after Jesus had started his ministry. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, little stable. We all remember that one, right? He grew up. He went. He was baptized before he started his ministry. He went, spent uh, days in the desert, was tempted, fasted, and started his ministry. And great things were happening. At this point, he was still very early. He had only called a few disciples by this point. In fact, actually, the next uh, paragraph in both of these accounts, uh, you see him calling Matthew, or Levi, as he's also called. And uh, so here we go. Few, and uh, by the way, this is going to take place in a place called Capernaum, which is really near uh, the Sea of Galilee, very close to his home, of Nazareth. So he starts at home. He starts in that Galilean countryside, and he's preaching, and he's teaching. And this is one of those times. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and they lowered the man who was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, and he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them. 
This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. I love Luke's account of this. Luke says this, same account. He says, Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. The next line, he says, Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God. I want to be gripped with great wonder and awe. I want the things of God to grab me, to grip me, to make me in awe of him. And there are a few things we can take from this passage. And the first is this, that Jesus was and is more concerned about the man and the faith of his friends than he was about religion or rituals. Because in that day, one of the problems that they were having with Jesus is he didn't do the normal stuff that a rabbi would do. Because to atone for someone's sin, you had to go and make all kinds of sacrifices. And only on certain days could you do that. And here he is, not at the temple, in somebody's house. And he just said, your sins are forgiven. He didn't do any special cleansing. He didn't do anything. He just looked at the man and forgave him and healed him. Because it's not about ritual, it's not about religion, it's about faith in Jesus Christ. He was making a point, and that point still stands. Jesus was not afraid to shake things up, no matter who was around, revealing openly and publicly who he was. In verse 10 it says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive Sins. He was saying, remember that Messiah you've been looking for? Well, let me tell you. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Here is the Son of Man. And one of the coolest things that gets skipped over in this story of how miraculous this was and the faith that was shown here is what these men went through to get their friend to Jesus. Think about this. We read this with us, you know, what's it take about it? A minute and a half to read through that passage? And we, we lose out on what really happened, the depth of what happened. So four men heard Jesus is coming to town. They have a friend who is a paralytic, who's paralyzed. And they go to the man's home. And the man lays on a mat. That was probably the majority of his life was laying on that mat that was his bed And they grabbed that mat, the four of them, and they marched him from his home down the street to where Jesus was. And when they got to the home where Jesus was, there was such a huge crowd that everything was filled. They couldn't even get in to see Jesus. But they made their way through the crowd enough to the house. And the houses back then and even today have staircases or even ladders on the outside to get up onto the roof. And they made their way up on the roof. And the structure of the home was this. It was a stone building, usually around 16 to 18 feet or so in width, with clay mortar. And once they got to the height that they needed, they put big beams across, log beams across every so many feet. And then they put across there the other way, perpendicular to that, reeds and branches. And then on top of that, straw. And on top of that, they would pack clay. They would make mud and pack it on top of there. And the clay kept the heat in at night and the heat out during the day. 
and that clay could be over a foot thick. Because that's what made it work. Now, if you think about that, think about four guys bringing their friend in to see Jesus and having to dig through that. A foot of clay that's been baked hard by the Middle Eastern sun. This is not something that just happened over a few minutes. This probably happened over a day. Hours of those guys digging at the roof, scraping off layer after layer to get down, removing branches so that they could just get their friend in to see Jesus. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of sacrifice. But it's worth it. And when we encounter great obstacles in life, we're faced with two decisions just like they were. The first one is give up and walk away. We get to the house, there's a big crowd. Oh, man. Well, let's just take them back home. And then we wonder what could have been. Maybe even whine about it a little bit for the rest of our life, right? Man, I should have done that. The other thing is we can pursue the Lord, we have a choice. When things get tough, we can walk away or we can pursue the Lord and dig deep and receive the redemption and the restoration that Jesus has for you and you and you and you. It's all very individual. And that's the beauty of it. I'll tell you another story. So that was from the beginning. Here's toward the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. It comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. Jesus and his disciples and the crowd that gathered around them were in a town called Jericho. Sound familiar from a few weeks ago, huh? And he's sitting with the men that he had spent 24-7 with for the last three years, eaten meals with, did ministry with, walked the countryside with, and he drops the bomb on them that, hey guys, guess what? One of you is going to betray me. I'm going to be hung on a cross dead, and then rise again. And they've been waiting for the time when Jesus, the Messiah, would come to Jerusalem and bring the kingdom of God. Well, this happens right before they leave to go to Jerusalem. So you kind of wonder what's going on in their minds. They're like, was this the time? You just wonder if there are disciples. Every time Jesus is like, hey guys, it's time to go back to Jerusalem, they're going, is this going to be the time? And so by now they're thinking that. And he told them, guess what's going to happen very soon? I'm going to die. So they must be thinking, this is the time. And as they're getting ready to leave for Jerusalem, this is right before the events of what we call Palm Sunday, right? So they're getting ready to leave for Jerusalem from Jericho. It says this. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us! And the crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. But instead, they shouted louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us! Jesus stopped. And called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Wow. Wow, what a question. They said, Lord, we want our sight. 
Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Wow. Wow. Could you imagine being in the crowd that day? Whoa, did you guys see what happened? We'll talk about that in a minute. But listen to what those two men said. Hear what they said to him. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the best part was when the crowd rebuked them. No, no, shh, don't. We're on the way to Jerusalem. The cool stuff's going to happen. What did they do? Did they turn and go, bummer? No, they came back with louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They screamed. And this statement was a confession of who Jesus was and is. He is Lord. He had and has the authority to command every deliverance and every healing. He is Lord. Son of David, they called him. Son of David. You know what they were saying? They're saying, hey, Messiah, we know it's you. That's the Jewish title of the Messiah, the Son of David. They knew from the lineage of King David comes the Messiah. That was a confession of who Jesus was and their faith in him. There was a genuine humility in their cry, have mercy on us. Genuine humility. They weren't specifying any favor. Just that Jesus would have mercy on them. I don't know what they expected. Maybe they thought, hey, maybe at least they'll throw a few coins this way. We don't know what was on their mind. But there was no sense of entitlement. It wasn't, God, I want this. Jesus, I I really want this. It was have mercy on us. They were willing to accept whatever the master brought. But here's the cool thing, that the presence of Jesus Christ brings such enlightenment that even the blind can see that Jesus is the Son of God and capable of anything, even healing, even miracles. It's awesome. And even though these two miracles happen at very different time in Jesus' ministries, about three years apart, they happen in different parts. Jericho's down in the south. Capernaum's up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. There's probably some different cultural inferences there and everything. They have some very important things in common. So let's look at those. And the first is this, that the men who came asking for healing, the four friends in the first story, and the two blind men in the second, knew, knew that Jesus had the power to do something great. They just knew it. You don't haul your friend through the street on a mat thinking, eh, maybe we'll do something good. They just knew in their heart that he could do something great for their friend. The two blind men who shouted out just knew. They knew who Jesus was. They called him by name, Lord, Son of David. They knew something great was going to happen, something amazing. These men were driven to action by their faith. They were driven to action. Our faith is not not reliant on our actions, but we are driven to action when we do have faith. There are things that motivate us and move us. And the friends not being able to get through that crowd with that man, they just kept working at it. Their faith in who Jesus was and what he could do for, his, for their friend 
drove them to the action of getting deeper with Jesus. I'm going to get into this crowd. I'm going to get my butt up on that roof. We will get in and see Jesus. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. And the blind men placing themselves where Jesus was when he left Jericho. Think about that. Think about that. They could be begging anywhere, but they placed themselves right where Jesus was going to be. Hmm. Some people call that coincidence. I'd call that a couple of really smart guys. Placing themselves in the path of the Savior. Both men who were healed displayed genuine humility. And they were really, they, they were there, ready to receive. The second story, we hear the man, the men saying, have mercy on us. That's pretty clear, the humility it takes to say, please, just have mercy on me. We don't see that with the first guy, but what we see is a man who had nothing to lose. Think about the humility it took for that man to allow his friends to haul him through the streets, past all their friends, all the people they knew, going past Bob's house, Mary's house, Susan's house, everybody looking at you, can't get in the crowd, so they just squeeze you through the crowd, up, and then you have to, they can't get you in. So they're sitting there, and you're laying there in the hot sun while they dig away. And then you become the center of attention, because I got news for you. If someone was ready to dig through the roof today, you would notice it. And they would become the center of attention. Please don't do that on a Sunday. We have plenty of chairs. There was such a humility in that man. Fourth thing is there was a miraculous act of God. And people who were touched responded. There was a response from that act. The paralytic says immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. That's awesome. That act of God that healed him that day. There was that mat he was laying on probably his whole life. That mat owned him. And at that moment, he owned that mat. Could you just see him after he was healed? He got up, dusted himself up, grabbed that mat, rolled that bad boy up, put it under his arm, walked through that crowd that he had to squeeze through, going, hey, it's my mat. I'm the guy. Praise God. Praise the Lord. He went home praising God. Woo! You know he did a few of those, right? He's carrying that mat, had to put it down for a second, like, I got me some legs! Woo! Those acts of God cause us to respond. The, 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 the crowd, think about the crowd. It said everyone was gripped with wonder and awe, and they praised God. God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. God's miracles always directs people to himself. Always directs our gaze to him when he does those things. The blind men in Matthew 20 says, immediately they received their sight and they followed him. They followed him. God moves. They responded. They didn't. Can you imagine being the guys in the crowd? 
And here are these guys. Have mercy on us. He touches them. Boom. And they get up and they're like, oh, come on, let's go. Think if you're the guy that rebuked him. Because remember, those were all followers of Jesus. What if you're the guys that were like, shh, we're going to Jerusalem. Five minutes later, you're on the road to Jerusalem. There's two guys by you going, hey, we're the guys. We can see. Wow, how powerful is that? They were so touched by God's compassion, by the love of Jesus Christ, that not only did, did they praise him, but they followed him. They followed him. It's exciting stuff. Think about this. Here's your, here's your bonus. Wasn't only the men who were healed that were affected by the miracles. It says there's a lot of crowds. Both of them had a bunch of crowds there. Couldn't even get in the house on the first one. This one, the whole crowd leaving Jericho. And if you see the move of God, you will be changed. And those people gathered in those crowds saw the move of God, and I guarantee they were changed in some way. And if you break it down into the, the non-believers, the unbelievers, or as I like to optimistically say, the not yet believers, when they saw that, at that point, they just couldn't say, oh, he was faking it. There was a point which they just could not deny that God is powerful and that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And it became very real to them at that moment. What they did with it is between them and God. But there was power there, undeniable power that gripped them. And for the believers, how that affirmed their faith and encouraged them as believers to just keep going on, keep moving forward. I don't know about you, man, but when I hear cool stories, I'm like, yeah! Ooh, tell me some more. I can't wait till the people from Nicaragua get back, because I want to hear the stories. Because that just lifts my faith. That's some good stuff right there. That'll preach. Someone should do that. So what can we learn from this, folks? Let's talk about that real quick. First of all, sometimes prayers are answered immediately with the simple cry of our heart and the touch from the Master. And other times, it takes a little digging through. Takes some digging through, guys. Some sacrifice, some time. It's like anything else in life. The more time we give to it, the more return we get. Not that we want the return. Not that that's why we're doing it. It's just the blessing we get. Think about your relationship with your best friend or your spouse. Maybe that's even the same person. God bless you. Maybe it's a, a relationship you have with your parents or your kids. The more time you invest with them, the deeper that becomes, doesn't it? And it's the same exact way it is with God. The more time we spend with him, the deeper it gets. And sometimes we just have to get on our knees and cry out, have mercy on me. And this is not a lame, name it and claim it thing. This is uh, I need to grow in my relationship with Jesus thing. This is my, I know that blessings always come on the other side of obedience thing. The second thing we can learn from this is that we cannot give up when our prayers are not answered right away. We don't know God's time. We talked a little bit about it last week, his, his eternal perspective, right? We're just, the, where we are right now in, in, the, in the perspective of eternity is a breath. It's a blink and 
That's hard comfort sometimes when we go through things, isn't it? But when we put things in there, there's such a peace that comes through it. Think about this. For the Israelites that Tom talked about just a a few weeks ago in the book of Joshua, when they finally make it to the promised land, remember that? It's like, woo, they made it. That's God answering prayer. Everybody's like, yeah, amen. It took 400 years. Oh, wow, really? 400 years to get a promise, for a promise of God to come to fruition. When... When Donna and I were kind of deciding where God would have us in our life, and we were going through what some people would call a crisis of faith, where we're just going, okay, God, we're ready. Just show us where to go, please. And you get to that point where you're just praying and praying and praying and praying. You're waiting for something, and then someone comes up to you, and they go, you know, Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And I hold on to that promise. It's a good promise. It's a great promise. I love it. But I think we need to put it in context. The verse before it says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then it goes on. For I know the plans I have for you. I was like, I don't have 70 years. But in the perspective of eternity, what is, who am I? Who am I? If I can be a little part in God's plan and something great's going to happen 70 years from now, I'll take it. Okay? Sometimes they just take a while. We had this old saying back in the day called praying through. Y'all remember that? Anybody remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, oh, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Cool, well, we're going to be praying through tonight. All right? If you're a golfer, it's like swinging through. Batting through. I got nothing else. Praying through. (laughs) But praying through, guys, what this means is that we are willing to take the time to pray, to get on our knees, to get on our face. We're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to get through that roof into Jesus. To let our faith walk. Sometimes that means that instead of hitting the snooze button, we get up, get in a quiet place with Jesus. Or maybe we just set the alarm 15 minutes earlier. Sometimes that means that instead of taking our lunch break at work, that we fast for that day. We go on a prayer walk. Maybe walk around the parking lot. Maybe you just stay in your cubicle or find a quiet place. Of course, then you become that, that, that guy. Or that girl, that woman. Oh, she's the one that does the talk and walk thing, right? It's okay. A lot of other people have looked a lot more foolish for for Jesus in those times. (laughs) Example. Draw in your prayer circles. Tom talked about this a while ago. Did a whole sermon series on drawing those circles. Home, work, your neighborhood. Praying through. Sometimes it's, it's, it's got, you got to get away. I, I do a prayer retreat once a year where I get away for at least two nights, three days. Because it takes me at least one day just to completely decompress. And then one day just to really get into it with Jesus. And then another day just to hear and let him respond. And that's, that's, that's the way it works for me. I'm not saying it's going to work for you. 
But you're like, you know, oh, well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to do that stuff. I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I need to. Because when I come back from those, from those prayer retreats, I'm a better pastor. I'm a better husband to my wife. I'm a better son to my mom. I'm a better person and a better friend to my friends. And you go, well, gosh, that costs money. Yeah, and it's worth the sacrifice. We spend money on all kinds of crazy stuff. Let's be real, people. Why not spend a little money, find a little retreat center, and go get yourself a Jesus and pray through? Again, guys, sometimes prayers are answered immediately with that simple cry of our heart and the touch from the master. But hear this. Hear this, guys. When it takes time, don't be discouraged. He does answer prayer. But the other thing is, when it happens immediately, don't forget to respond and give all the glory to God. It's all his anyway. I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come on up. As they do, I'm going to ask you three questions. Because when we experience Jesus Christ, something amazing will happen. That's the guarantee. It's not always something huge, but it will be amazing. Sometimes it is huge, too. But that is what happens. That's a guarantee. If you get on your face and seek the Lord, amazing things happen. And here are three questions that I need to ask myself on a regular basis, and I'll ask you, too. Is One, if we are not asking, why would we ever expect to receive? If we don't go to the Father and ask with that full assurance of faith, knowing that he loves us and cares for us, why would we ever expect to receive anything? You have not because you ask not, he says. I want to ask. It's okay to ask. Second thing is this. If we're not listening, why would we ever expect to hear from him? If we're not listening for the voice of the Father, why would we expect to hear it? And the third is, if we're not seeking God's will for our life on a regular basis, why would we ever expect to be part of his plan? There's, there's, a, there's a thing about faith that demands action, just like these men took. Ask, listen, seeking, getting in God's faith, face, getting on our face and seeking him. God, it's good, guys. Here's what we're going to do. I know it's, uh, it's getting a little late. Some of you have to get, get your kiddos from the nursery and that, and that's cool. Feel free uh, to do that. And if you'd like to stay, uh, I invite you just to enjoy it and, and join us in another worship song as the band leads us. If you need some prayer, I'd ask that our prayer uh, ministry partners would come on up and take their places on the sides of the sanctuary. And if you need, if you need prayer, if you came today and went, wow, something struck me about that today, I don't know.